The Golden City, Episode 7, Murder in Golden Gate Park, Part 2. You look at these three suspects and you just wonder, what the hell happened? How did we get here? How did we get here as a society? Where did we go wrong? Thanks for coming back for part two of my interview with author and crime journalist Vivian Ho. In this episode, Vivian reads the first chapter of her book, Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids. After that, we'll conclude our interview. Vivian's book begins with a first-person account from the Marin County courtroom where Morrison Lampley, Lila Oligood, and Sean Engold have just been sentenced for the murders of Audrey Carey in Golden Gate Park and Stephen Carter on a trail in Marin County just three days later. The victim's families were still crying quietly when Chief Deputy Public Defender David Brown stood to address the packed courtroom in Marin County, California. Next to him, his client, Morrison Hayes Lampley, remained seated, his unruly mop of sandy brown hair pulled back into a neat knot. Though the emotional and heartfelt statements from the victim's families had drawn tears from many in the gallery, as well as from his two co-defendants, Lampley, who goes by Hayes, kept his expressionless stare focused on the table in front of him, just as he had for the majority of the legal proceedings. David Brown had worn a similar mask over the past year and a half, one of practice stoicism shaped from years of courtroom experience. A gangly man with an almost constantly furrowed brow, he withstood with reluctance the onslaught of television cameras and microphones shoved in his face after each court appearance, declining the podium-pouting showboating that comes naturally to attorneys presented with high-profile cases. Even within the courtroom, he played the details close to his chest, refusing to feed the ravenous reporters that he tried to bar from the proceedings as they sought to make sense of two cold-blooded killings that had horrified the Bay Area. But on the day Hayes Lampley, his teenage girlfriend, and his longtime acquaintance were to be sentenced for the murders of 23-year-old Audrey Carey and 67-year-old Steve Carter, Brown spoke to the court with the candor of an attorney who knew that his client was about to spend the rest of his life in prison. In the rushed bluntness he had become known for, Brown laid out the brutal reality of Hayes' 24 years on this earth. The neglect, the homelessness, the abuse, the mental illness. He was deprived of everything a child needs, Brown said, dosed with LSD as a toddler, shooting up drugs by the age of 11. A psychiatrist once described him as a feral child. Hayes would have fared no worse or no better if he had been dropped off on a street corner after he was born, Brown said. Then he turned to the front row of the gallery where the victim's family sat. This is not offered as an excuse, Brown said to them, but as an attempt to understand why we're all here. What here meant differed for each person in the courtroom that day. In the simplest of terms, here was the end of an 18-month ordeal that began in October 2015 when three young drifters robbed and fatally shot Audrey Carey in the bushes of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, and then went on to kill Steve Carter for his car keys on a popular hiking trail in Marin County, just over the Golden Gate Bridge. For the family members of Steve Carter, a respected tantra instructor who had moved back to California to support his wife to chemotherapy, and Audrey Carey, a free-spirited young girl with a bright future, here was a hell created by three monsters, 
Hayes Lampley, his 19-year-old girlfriend Lila Scott Alligood, and Sean Angold, their 25-year-old friend, for whom no amount of prison time would make up for the lives they stole. It's not like those people just killed Steve, located Carter, Steve's widow. They killed a huge chunk of me. They killed a whole chunk of another human being. In a statement read at the sentencing by a prosecutor, Audrey's mother, Isabel Tremblay, denounced all three as proof that evil exists. You are not human beings, she wrote. Her statement was an emotional, stinging barb, pulled from a deep place of grief to pierce into the hearts of the ones to whom it was directed. Lila sobbed through the reading, her attorney patting her on the back, while Sean kept his head down, his eyes damp. But months later, Hayes shrugged at the vitriol directed at him and his two co-defendants that day. Unspeakable monsters, Isabel Tremblay had called them. It wasn't the first time, Hayes said, that he'd been called a monster. It wasn't even the first time he had been called a monster as, as it pertained to this case. Throughout the proceedings, observers said those with knowledge of the case dismissed Hayes as a psychopath, an, an amoral creature sowing chaos everywhere he turned. They remarked in his dead eyes, his blank stare, the way he never reacted to anything in court. Authorities were quick to paint him as the ringleader, the one who called the shots, the one who pulled the trigger in both the killings. In the realm of culpability, he had the most blood on his hands, they said, and that was reflected in the charges in the sentencing. Sean was sentenced to 15 years in life for the murder of Sully Steve Carter as part of the plea deal for his testimony. Lila was sentenced to 50 years to life, while Hayes received a 100-year sentence. A monster, they called him. Before his attorney's statement at the sentencing, few had stopped to consider what had made him this way. Few had stopped to consider what sort of life he had lived that allowed him to deem it acceptable to rob two strangers at gunpoint, knowing full well that any misstep could end in bloodshed. Few had stopped to consider the sort of misfortunes that had shaped him into the type of young man who could witness up close the gore from one murder and still feel unaffected enough to pull the trigger on a second human being just days later. And even fewer had stopped to consider that the misfortunes that had made Hayes who he is today are the same ones that have driven countless kids to a life of aimless homelessness. That the demons that haunt Hayes, Lila, and Sean are the same that haunt the youth we pass in the streets every day, squatting along city sidewalks amid a cloud of body odor and mar marijuana smoke. Because for Hayes, Lila, and Sean, here was the abrupt end of a complicated and treacherous journey through their youth, run riddled with violence, drug use, terror, and crime. Here was the last stop of an unforgiving path on which millions of kids, teenagers, and young adults find themselves traveling each day, wandering across the country with little more than the packs on their back and nowhere to call home. The tearful sentencing unfolded in the same courthouse that had been made famous by Angela Davis and the Black Panthers in the 1970s. Located in the heart of Marin County, the Civic Center is an architectural marvel designed by Frank Lloyd Wright shortly before his death, all chic curves and sleek glass atria. As a crime reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, I had spent a chunk of the 18 months it took to reach this point in the case crammed shoulder to shoulder with other local journalists in a modish wood-paneled courtroom, scribbling down every gruesome, bloody detail of the killings under a bizarre spherical light fixture that reminded me of a cartoon spaceship. At times, being in that stylized courtroom felt like a stepping into a topsy-turvy alternative reality, at the center of which sat Hayes, Lila, and Sean. 
18 months prior, deputies had marched him into the courtroom, all in their jail-issued stripes jumpsuits and with their heads shaved. Authorities had said they had bugs living in their tangled, matted hair when they arrived in Marin County. For a short time, their bald heads added another surreal layer to an already surreal situation. At their sentencing, 18 months later, their short but clean locks, not long enough that they could be pulled back into buns, seemed to signify more than just the passage of time. So few crimes happen in this affluent little county that are considered high-profile enough to tempt the San Francisco-based reporters into making the 40-minute drive over the Golden Gate Bridge, but each minuscule hearing and court appearance in this case had television satellite trucks lined up in the main parking lot. The media attention was so great that I had to make a conscious effort to arrive early to ensure I would even get into the courtroom. Beyond the other reporters, every calendar item in this case brought in scores of court gadflies like you lose and various other forms of concerned citizenry. We at the Chronicle began referring to Hayes, Lila, and Sean as the drifters pretty much from the start, and the term caught on with other out- news outlets as well. We slug our stories in the daily budgets with it and dropped a label in casual conversation. It got to the point where I'd canceled plans with my friends because of the drifters, and they'd fully understand what I meant. Thinking back, I'm not sure why drifters became a term that stuck, but we cycled through a number of other descriptions for the three. Young transients, I wrote in September 2016. The accused murder trio, said the San Francisco Examiner in October 2015. Three young itinerants, according to the Marin Independent Journal in November 2015, and murderous vagabonds in April 2017 for the sentencing. Lost Souls was what the Marin County Sheriff's spokesperson, Lieutenant Doug Pittman, called them at the press conference announcing their arrests, an ollie poetic phrase from someone in law enforcement, and we all ran that quote for about a week before tiring of it. All the media coverage made a point to reference their youth. At the time of their arrest in October 2015, Lila had just turned 18, while Hayes and Sean were 23 and 24, respectively. At 26, I was just a few years older than they were when this all began, yet as I sat there in the courtroom 18 months later, I felt as if there were decades between us. The defendant's youth contributed to the media frenzy around the trial, but that was just one of several elements of this case to capture the attention of the Bay Area. There was a senselessness to these crimes that nobody could comprehend, disruption to the regularly scheduled programming of our prescribed acceptable behavior in society. The fact that the three killed two strangers was especially chilling. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, only about 10% of all homicides nationwide involve strangers. And the fact that they committed these murders within days of each other led many to wonder whether there had been, or could have been, more had the police not arrested them when they did. But most of all, what terrified Bay Area residents was the fact that Hayes, Lila, and Sean could have been one of the hundreds of kids, teens, and young adults we pass in the streets every day. The transient youth population is especially vibrant in California to the point that they have their own categorization within the realm of homelessness, street kids. Mention the term street kid to anyone on the West Coast and they know exactly of whom we speak. The tough and at times confrontational kids with dreadlock hair who spend all day lounging around in the parks or on the sidewalks. Yes, they're homeless, but somehow they're different from the downtrodden folk who line up with their carts outside the soup kitchens. They have neither money nor steady employment, but they're not destitute. They're not all kids in the sense that they're under the age of 18, yet they all somehow seem have both a youthfulness and an age presence about them. These kids were the backbone of the vagabond cult- counterculture that became part of San Francisco's identity. 
But following the slayings of Audrey Carey and Steve Carter, they became scapegoats for law-abiding citizens to fear the most. Complaints that supposedly progressive Bay Area residents had never felt acceptable to voice before spilled over in a frenzied witch hunt as they struggled to make peace with the dichotomy of their free-spirited history that accepted and celebrated these wanderers and the current unpredictable reality of street kids setting up tents anywhere they pleased, using hard drugs, urinating wherever, and holding loud all-night parties outside people's homes. At best, these kids blocked sidewalks and lived in handouts. At worst, they were a violent, threatening presence who fought among themselves and scared away customers from local businesses. For these Bay Area residents, here was the possibility that these kids, who had long been part of the fabric of San Francisco life, now had the potential to be the monsters, to be the evil, that tore through Audrey Carey's and Steve Carter's families. Here is the chance that you or someone you love could be the next Audrey or Steve. No one knows for certain how many homeless youth are out there right now, with policymakers on federal and local levels at odds over what exactly constitutes homelessness. And at what age someone emotionally and psychologically stunted from living in the streets can no longer be considered a youth. Even some who fall within the broadest parameters of homelessness reject a loaded term because while claiming one's homelessness grants access to opportunities when it comes to housing, healthcare, and funding, it still carries a significant stigma and helplessness that many are unwilling to accept. Researchers at the University of Chicago Chapin, Chicago's Chapin Hall attempted to count the country's homeless youth in 2017 and found that 1 in 10 young adults ages 18 to 25 had experienced some form of homelessness for a period of 12 months or more. Half of those individuals admitted outright to experiencing explicit homelessness, while the other half claimed to be couch surfing and surviving off the mercy of others. That same study found that 1 in 30 youth ages 13 to 17 had been homeless for at least a 12-month period, with three-quarters of those individuals admitting to explicit homelessness, whether because they ran away or were kicked out of their homes, and the remaining quarter reporting that they, like their young adult counterparts, survived by staying with acquaintances hopping from couch to couch. That all boils down to an estimated 3.5 million young adults and 700,000 youth who have experienced prolonged homelessness at some point in their lives. And each one of those lives contains an unknown history of trauma and pain, be it what drove them to the streets or what they found waiting for them when they got there. Emotional baggage that will drive a good number of them to a life of hard drugs and mental instability until bit by bit, they fade from the burgeoning human beings they once were into just another statistic to rattle off in a book. Even before the killings, Street kids were regarded in San Francisco and beyond with a level of disdain reserved specifically for this particular subset of the homeless population. And this disdain has only continued. What little compassion we have for the homeless is safe for those who fit our ideal version of homelessness. Those down on their luck, struggling to make their way off the street. Those who want to better themselves and their circumstances, but who must overcome certain obstacles to do so. On the flip side, there are the street kids, the vagabonds, the drifters, the free spirits taking advantage of our goodwill to neglect the responsibilities set by a social contract by which we must all abide. A common narrative pushed about these kids is that they are homeless by choice. They could easily not be homeless, so the narrative goes, as they would just get a job, as they would stop being lazy, if only they didn't want this free-living life. These kids are a middle finger to the American myth of resilience and perseverance, in which anyone can succeed if they pull themselves up with their bootstraps. 
These kids just refuse to try, the critics say. They refuse to live by the societal contract to which we all adhere. To street kids and those who work with them, this narrative is not only inaccurate but also damaging. Because for the majority of these kids, the choice is between homelessness and, for example, do I want to stay at home and get raped every night by my uncle? In the words of Christian Garmisa Kalinsky, who ran a nonprofit that found housing for street kids in San Francisco. Or like it was for me, do I want to stay home and get my bones continually broken by my mother? I had met Christian just days after the three were arrested in Portland, Oregon, at a heated hate street community meeting in which he acted as the voice of reason, reminding the angry masses that it'd be unfair to paint all street kids with the same brush and assume all had the potential for murder. After all, just a decade ago, Christian had been part of this population, sleeping in parks with his pack underneath him and his legs tangled over his bicycle to prevent theft. Like Hayes, he too was described as feral, having been homeless on and off since the age of 12. The only life I knew was packing all my stuff into my pack and being able to leave real quick, he said. In his time on the streets and the work he does now, he's come across countless kids with the same sort of background as Hayes, Lila, and Sean. They run away to escape a life in which it was beaten into them that they were nothing, less than nothing, and then they are taken in by the streets where the last of their humanity is ripped from them. Because on the streets, there is no black and white. There is no good and evil. There's only survival. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have no boots. You can't persevere if the trauma you suffered as a child makes it impossible for you to look a person in the eye. If the only way of life you know is a needle in your arm to numb the pain. This is not offered as an excuse, but as an attempt to understand why we're all here. I had been having conversations with Christian about this very point for weeks before David Brown made a statement in court. Christian had needled me for wondering about what forced these kids into the streets into a life of violence, drug abuse, instability, and, in the case of Hayes, Lila, and Sean, murder. You should focus on the solution, on how to get them off the streets, he said. Because for those who work with this population, they already know all too well that here is what happens when our children are failed time and time again by the citizens in place. Here is the end result of instability, neglect, abuse, drug addiction, mental illness, and violence that is only perpetuated with the more time these hurt kids are forced to live as homeless transients in a community of other hurt kids just as unpredictable and in need of help as they are. Here began for generations of youth before Hayes, Lila, and Sean were even born. The circumstances of Hayes' life that led him to here are far more complicated, conflicting, and crushing than what his attorney laid out in court the day of his sentencing. They are circumstances similar to those suffered by Sean and Lila, similar to those suffered by the millions that remain in the streets each night while those three wait out their prison sentences. This means little to the families of Audrey Carey and Steve Carter. They have had to endure an unspeakable loss because of these circumstances Circumstances beyond their control, a loss for which there is no excuse. But these circumstances are not being offered as an excuse. They are being offered as a way to understand this generation of lost youth, a generation of hurt kids just like Hayes, Lila, and Sean, many of whom find themselves every day teetering at the same precipice of no return where those three stood in October 2015. Here is not Americana folklore, Jack Kerouac in the summer of love coming home to roost. Here is a crisis, decades in the making. Here is millions of hurt kids abandoned on the streets, knowing little more than doing whatever it takes to survive. 
We were here before Audrey Carey and Steve Carter were mercilessly gunned down, before they even crossed paths with the three who had killed them. We were here before Hayes Lampley took his first snort of heroin, before Lila Ali got smoked her first hit of meth, before Sean Angled's doomed chance encounter with the couple in San Francisco. The question now is where we go from here. Thank you for that, mm-hmm. for reading that. Um, and not for nothing, but the headline of the story I wrote about mm-hmm. the verdict, it was transient pair pleads mm. guilty in 2015 Golden Gate Park Marin murders. And I believe actually in the lead, it's two drifters accused of killing a Canadian tourist and a Marin tantra therapist. It's interesting how language is kind of contagious. Right. Like we find really odd terms that to hook on to odd situations. Yeah, it's true. It is. How'd they get the gun? Well, that was a that's a doozy of a story, and that's a story that it, it's a whole other story within this story. They were. Um, it's a game that a lot of uh, transient kids play, where they're just they'll pull on the the handle of cars just to see if they're locked and if it's unlocked it's your lucky day you go and you see what's what's there in this case they were uh these three were doing this by coit tower and they pulled on the handle of a f-150 truck and it was unlocked and in the center console was a fully loaded gun and just completely unlocked car, just a fully loaded gun, and it was jackpot. Guns are valuable. It's good for it's good for protection, and they they took it. Interesting. Well, that's that's an answer. <laughs> um, I'm I'm kind of I'm a little flummoxed just because I didn't I knew they I knew they stole the gun, yeah. but I didn't realize it was just. Huh. I mean that's that's I, I know with, with, from covering crime in San Francisco that stealing guns from parked cars is a pretty common thing. Um, yeah. And in some cases, it's from law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, having their car, their gun stolen. There's been a lot of talk. Of, um, I mean, came on the trial. You know, there was stuff like, oh, the, the car was locked. No, the car. You know, it it was in a safe. No, it was this or that. But um, Hayes Lambley told me straight up, you guys know the car was completely unlocked. We opened it. It was right there. It was just we just took it. So you, you kind of touched on this in the end of the chapter you read, but why did San, why do you think San Francisco reacted the way it did to these two murders? It's because it's the way we react anytime something happens with the homeless. I mean, you, we saw we saw the same thing happen with that uh, woman who was attacked on Embarcadero. I mean, it's um, we like the scapegoat. It's when we don't understand a group of people. We are fearful of them. We don't understand these kids. I mean, understandably, we, we don't understand these kids. Like, who who can't who can understand? I mean, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of a lot of us still believe these kids are homeless by choice. Why would they pick this lifestyle? None of us get it. Well, now we know it's not homeless by choice. But you know, we look at these kids. We just don't understand them. We don't get them. And because we don't get them, we're, we're afraid of them. And when we're afraid of people, that's when the worst things happen. Which of the perpetrators did you talk to? I spoke to Hayes Lampley multiple times for a very long periods of time. 
in prison. And then I spoke to Sean Angle on the phone a couple times, but not very in-depth. And Lila Alligood wanted nothing to do with me. Interesting. Why do you think that the other two were willing to talk? Um, honestly, I ask myself that every day. You know, I have no idea why Hayes wanted to talk. But, um, you know, part of me thinks he is bored. Some of me, you know, a little part of me thinks that maybe he was trying to game the system a little bit, trying to get sympathy. Did your understanding of the crime change after talking to the two of them? No. I think that was uh, one thing that was pretty solid. The the facts were there. The facts were solid. Um, Hayes presented to me an alternative set of facts. And... Like, like an alternative theory of the case? Yeah. I mean, so so basically the, the way it breaks down was that Hayes Lampley was a trigger man in both shootings. Hayes presented me two different situations, according to him, that happened in both the cases. One of them was just completely out of the realm of possibility. It just, you know, just absolutely was not possible. And, you know, I checked with the investigators, I asked them, and it just completely was not possible. The other one was quite possibly possible. We don't know. But uh, the fact is, you know, the series of events, um, I I would argue that this is a case of, um, I've been asked before, why did you start off your book by telling them who did it? It's not a case of who done it, you know. It's one of those cases where the crime itself is just very clear cut. You know, it's we know what happened. It's just knowing why. That's a harder question. So, what's the? As far as I don't think we're ever going to know why, really, because we're not those people in those moments. Mm-hmm. But I, as far as the legal conclusion of this case, um, why? Why did they kill Audrey Carey and why did they kill Steve Carter? Money. That was it. For Audrey Carey, they, they saw her. They thought she was foreign. She was from um, Quebec. They thought that she um, had money. And for Lila and Hayes, they were sick of the life. They wanted to get away. They wanted, they wanted off the streets. Hayes had this pipe dream that he had this land in Oregon that was in his family for a very long time and that he could have it. He just had to get there. That's all he needed. And so he thought if he got a little bit of money and he hitchhiked up there he, and he just got there, then that'd be it. He'd be free. He'd be safe. That'd be it. But um, they needed money. And so they saw Audrey Carey as an easy target they introduced a gun into the scenario and things went south very fast. And then when Steve Carter came along, they needed a getaway car. That's all they needed. And Sorry, how'd they get to Marin from San Francisco? It was just walking. Just walking. They were trying to hitchhike. And they realized in two days they only got to Marin from San Francisco. And they realized it was taking too long. We need a car. We need a car. So just, I'm sorry, just to be clear. So they, they killed Audrey. They killed Audrey. And then they walked to Marin as part of their escape plan to get north to Oregon? Yes. Okay. And, you know, they just wanted to get out of the state. They wanted to get out of there. But, you know, it was taking too long. 
and they just thought we need a car we need a car and um unfortunately they came in contact with steve carter at that point you've covered a lot of crime in san francisco mm -hmm. what made you decide to turn this story into a book it just felt like a tragedy on all fronts it was absolutely heartbreaking from the victim's perspectives here was a young girl who was cut down you know as she was trying to figure out her life as she was just starting off and here was a man who is here to support his wife through chemotherapy who you know they loved each other so much and his wife Lakita Carter has this most glorious blog and she just wrote the most beautiful things about his, him and their relationship together it was heartbreaking in that perspective but you look at these three suspects and you just wonder what the hell happened how did we get here how did we get here as a society where did we go wrong Vivian Ho, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being here. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Awesome. Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids by Vivian Ho is available in independent bookstores and online. Music for The Golden City was written and performed by Michael Tritter. Artwork was created by Cynthia Vega. Thanks very much for listening.